Good morning, everybody. Um, it's kind of a big day today. Um, uh, Kind of a big day for a lot of reasons, but in case you haven't noticed, there is a Super Bowl today, and I always try to like take the pulse of the people, all right? I like to know where our church is at, where what they stand for, and if they're going to be on the side of good or evil this year, so... I do this every year, but let me just say, say if you're rooting for the Chiefs to win the Super Bowl, let me hear a cheer. Yeah. All right, yeah. If you're rooting for the Buccaneers, I guess let's hear it. <laughs> Security! Get her out of here! Just kidding. All right, let me hear a cheer. Let me hear a cheer. If you Cowboys, get a rope. No, I'm just kidding. I'm teasing. Let me hear you if you could care less. <laughs> you can get out of here. No, I'm, I'm joking. Hey, I made a trip to Kansas City the other day, and um, I'm from Kansas City. I lived there for 11 years before moving here. And uh, my wife and I and some friends, our family, went up there to just check out the city. I mean, you know, the whole thing turns red, and we love that city. And uh, I also picked up some more boxes of Mahomes Crunch. Now, do you remember when I gave some of this away last year? Do you guys remember that? Where have you been? I mean, like, what's real, where's your priorities? No, I'm just kidding. We, I gave some of these away, and uh, a lot of people wanted them. And so I grabbed some more boxes and thought I'd give a couple more away today. Is that all right if I give some of you? You can't get these around here, by the way. These are collector's boxes. And if I see any of these wind up on eBay after today, we're having some words. No, I'm just joking. All right. Um, now, the first one's going to go to, I've got to give this to the, the Twinkie Award. I came to church to dress like the pastor day. Jim, you got to have this one. So... There you go, my friend. Anybody that would wear a jersey to church on Super Bowl Sunday shows commitment unlike I've seen in years. So he gets the Twinkie Award. Now, this one's going to be trivia-based, okay? So any Chiefs fan's going to know this. So if you think you know the answer, you shout it out. You don't have to raise your hand. And if you're the first person to shout this out, to the best of my ability, I'm going to try to pick the first person, okay? And uh, we'll just use the honor system. All right? And you're going to get this box. Now... Who can tell me the name of the Kansas City Chiefs wide receiver who is nicknamed the Cheetah? Hill. All right, who said that? Very back row, give her a hand right there. She gets the box. The answer is Tyreek Hill. Let me see who that is. Congratulations. Now, um, now something that you're going to notice that, I don't know, Jim, if you can hold up your box, if you turn it on the backside, there is a picture. Now, what's your say? Maho. Okay. It, it's like, the, the, here's how they tricked you this year. You can't just buy one box. If you buy eight boxes and they all have the different picture on the back, it creates a mural of Patrick Mahomes. So, uh, um, I went to two high V's and spent an hour with my children and friends digging through thousands of boxes to find all eight. And I have all eight. I just want to let you know. So you step by, come by my office sometime next week, and you're going to see all eight boxes in the whole picture. Anyway, hey, glad you could be here today. Grab your Bibles. We're going to continue our series today on Grounded, on Grounded. We are um, exploring biblical doctrines today, and this for the next few weeks. You know, these core essential doctrines. These are the things that uh, we have to have unity on as a church. There's really no gray area here with what we're talking about. This is what the Bible says about these foundational truths about our faith, and we accept them. The word doctrine, if you recall, just means what? 
teachings, teachings. These are the core teachings of the Bible, what we're gonna be having unity on. Now last week we talked about the doctrine of God and I tried to lay a biblical foundation for our belief in God. And the, I said this last week and I wanna repeat myself, and, and, um, but you might remember. I said, if you can believe the first five words of the Bible, in the beginning, God created. If you can believe with all your faith in the first five words of the Bible, then there's really no reason why you can't believe everything in the Bible that comes after that. So if you can believe that in the beginning God created, then uh, you can also believe that the Bible says that God created everything, that God is love, that God is merciful, that God is all-powerful, that God is all-knowing, that God is everywhere, God is faithful, and that God is holy. God is holy. What, what does that mean to be holy? That means to be set apart. What is it that God is set apart from? Well, we should know the answer to that from last week. God is removed. He is set apart from sin. And that is a good segue into this next core doctrine that we're gonna be studying today together is this. What does the Bible teach us about sin? The doctrine of sin. You know, not long ago, I saw a commercial on TV, and they were advertising a chocolate dessert, and I honestly can't remember now what the dessert was, but what I do remember is how they described this dessert. They described this dessert as a sinful delight, a sinful delight, and I remember that because it kind of struck me just a little bit odd. What do they mean that this is a sinful delight? Because as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, the words sin and delight aren't supposed to go together, are they? You're not gonna see those things together in the Bible, so they put these two words together, a sinful delight. So what do they mean? Do they mean that this candy or this dessert they're advertising, that it tastes so good that you'll think it's a sin it's so good? Do they mean that it's actually a sin to eat it? Do they mean that it is so good that you're willing to sin to eat it? What message are they trying to send? Now, we all know that this is just a marketing ploy, isn't it? This is just something that a marketer put together. How can I make my product memorable? How can I advertise this? How can I entice people to buy this and they use sinful delight? We know that's really what's going on here. But it kind of struck me a little bit odd that they would use the word sin to describe something that is good. Do you see these two opposites here? We're gonna use something that's bad, a terrible act towards God, but we're gonna use that word to describe something, something good. It just kind of struck me a little bit odd. But we do this kind of thing. You know, have you ever talked about Las Vegas? What do we call it? Sin City. Now, it's called Sin City because, well, let's be honest, there's a lot of sin that happens in Vegas. But you know what? When people today oftentimes refer to Sin City, when they say, oh, we're going to go spend the weekend in Sin City, they're not thinking of it as something bad. Sin is actually associated with something they're looking forward to going and doing. We're going to Sin City. It just doesn't have um, the emphasis, the, the, the harshness that that word sin perhaps used to have. And it's just odd that we often use the word sin to describe something good. Maybe that's because the word sin just doesn't have the impact that it once had. 
You think in today's culture, when we refer to sin, it does not evoke the same kind of response that perhaps it did in your grandparents or great-grandparents' generation. That words seem to have meant something just a little bit harder than what it does today. For, for, the, for a lot of us today, the idea of sin does not conjure up this emotion, this oh my goodness. It does not have that kind of impact. It doesn't hit us like this really awful behavior towards God. This is just my observation. But it doesn't even seem like we as Christians call sin, sin anymore. Seems like even in the church, we don't really call things by the way the Bible calls them as sin. I think we're guilty at times in the church as to not want to offend anybody or be too harsh or come across too judgmental. We have kind of soft served what sin is. We have perhaps watered down what sin really is and just how awful it is towards God. You know, back in the day, it does seem like the church knew what sin was. We called it by its name. Anybody grow up in a church where the preacher sweated a lot? Well, that's this one. But sweated a lot and pounded the pulpit and called out sin and talked about hell. Did anybody grow up in a church like that? A few of us. If something was clearly a sin, it was called that, but not so much these days, it seems. Why is it that we as Christians have a hesitancy, we stutter just a little bit, to call out sin and to call it by its name? Could it be that just we ourselves are guilty of the fact that it just doesn't impact us? Maybe we're just a little desensitized to it all, or maybe we ourselves are a little bit guilty of soft-serving it or watering it down or whatever you want to call it. Seems like sin today gets justified away. It seems like it's easy to explain away sin. There's got to be a reason for that. We're not going to call it sin. Terrible acts against God. I'll give you an example. If you were to ever watch a documentary or you're going to read a story about a parent who kills their child, as awful as that sounds, you're going to have somebody come out and, and say that that parent's not really responsible because they themselves were abused as a child. We don't call it out sin, that's murder, awful thing that's done. No, we, we tend to talk about like, well, you know, they had trauma themselves. And that may very well be the truth, but it's still sin. You, know, you take a drunkard who absolutely squanders his finances, squanders his health away, abuses his family, but that person's considered ill, really, not sinful. That's, that's ill. I mean, we softened it up just a little bit. We don't use words very much like this anymore. Adultery, fornication. When was the last time you ever heard anybody say fornication? We now talk about things, we talk about it this way. Sexual activity. We say things like extramarital activity. We just don't call it sin anymore. Awful behavior towards God, sin. Rarely do you hear anyone refer to homosexuality, the sin of homosexuality, as an abomination. When have you ever heard that lately? What do we say instead? We hear things like this. Alternate lifestyle. What else do we hear? Sexual orientation. 
we soften things up. We don't call it what the Bible seems to clearly call it. Our culture really has neutered sin. And many Christians have followed right along suit. Let, let me give you a, a definition of sin from somebody from, from a, a previous generation. J.H. Jallet once said this, I covet no phraseology that lends respectability to sin. The sorest injury we could do a man is to lighten his conception of the enormity of sin. Oh man, it's almost like he looked off into the future, didn't he? Our society has skewed some definitions here. We've skewed the identity of sin. And along with that, we have dumbed down the word or the idea of sin. We've taken some of the impact out of it. And even worse than that, we've even categorized sin. We've dumbed down some sins. Like, you know, lying's a good example of this. We have big lies. And then what do we have? Little white lies. We don't even call those lies. We call those little fibs, right? It's all sin. We, we've, we've skewed that. I think maybe even worse than that, worse than, you know, recategorizing, worse than, than uh, you know, giving it levels, worse than skewing its meaning. I think worse than even softening or, or that, it's, it's redefining it altogether. People today who decide for themselves what is and what isn't going to be sin. That's what we're seeing today, even within the church across our country. We decide, we choose what will be and what will, won't be sin. I'll give you an example of this. This happened to a, a, a preacher friend of mine um, a while back. And he told me about a situation that he was dealing with in his church where one of their adult youth leaders, sometimes coach, you know, churches call them youth sponsors or youth coaches, um, but one of their adult youth leaders um, had decided to move in with his girlfriend and, and, and confess they had been intimate together even though they weren't married. And so the pastor confronted this youth leader on that decision and they tried to talk it out and reason with it biblically, but at the end of the day, they, they couldn't come together. So the, the pastor just lovingly told this youth leader that at this time, I can't have you serving in the student ministry of our church because your lifestyle choices is not a good example to our, our students. We teach our students to save themselves for marriage. That's what the Bible indicates. That's what we teach. Your lifestyle is inconsistent with the message of Scripture we're trying to teach the kids. So right now, um, we're not going to have you serve as a, as a youth leader. And that's not even the shocking part. The shocking part is what happened next. Because this youth leader said to the pastor this. He said, well, pastor, I want you to know that my girlfriend and I, we've been praying about this decision for a really long time, and we believe that God is leading us into this path to move in together, and we believe that God is blessing this decision. Where does that kind of thinking come from? Does it come from a, a platform of ignorance? I didn't know. Does it come from a stance of, of um, I don't know what you call it, disobedience? In other words, I know it's sin, but I don't care. That's disobedience. Or does it come from a place of reinterpretation? I've thought about it, and I've decided that it's not a sin. And that right there, I think, is where maybe a lot of people are at today. I've thought about it, and I've just made up my mind, it's not a sin for me. 
today, friends, I want you to know we're going to look at what the Bible says about sin. This is about the teachings of the Bible on sin, to having a biblical foundation for what it is. So today, I'm going to try to quickly answer for us four basic foundational questions that form our doctrine about sin. The first question is, what does the Bible say about sin? What is sin? The next question is, where did sin come from? And the third question is, what is sin like? And finally, what are the consequences of sin? Friends, if we can answer those four questions biblically, you're gonna have a solid foundation for the doctrine of sin. So let's just get right into this. What is sin? What is it? R.G. Lee writes this about sin. Sin is the most heinous and hellish thing in God's universe. You know, I like his definition, to be honest with you. There's something about it that resonates with me. Sin is the most heinous and hellish thing in God's universe. Biblically speaking, sin is this. It is to break or violate God's law, or you might say God's rules. 1 John chapter 3, verse 4 tells us this. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. Throughout the Bible, God had a clear plan on display for his creation. He's clearly identified what is acceptable and what is not acceptable for us as his creation. Now, as the Bible unpacks for us all throughout the Old and New Testament, what is sin, and, and it describes what it is, and the consequence of sin, and all of these things, there are some words that pop out that, that describe sin in certain ways. And we're not gonna dig into the whole um, original language backdrop, but let me just tell you, there are some words the Bible uses, and one of them means this that sin is a transgression of God's law or it's overstepping God's law. Now, this kind of description of sin is, is one example is found in the parable of the prodigal son. Do you guys remember that one? Luke chapter 15, Jesus tells a story about a son who wanted his inheritance early and so the father gave it to him and he went out and squandered his wealth and when he had hit the lowest moment of his life, he came to his senses, went home to his father and his father forgave him. Open arms, welcomed him right back in the family. And it's a description of how God sees us. Forgiveness and grace and mercy. Isn't that a wonderful picture of God. But there's an older brother in that story. And do you remember the older brother wasn't all happy about his younger brother coming home? And if you look in verse 29 of chapter 15, the older brother comes to his dad and he says, Dad, what gives? This is my own little paraphrase. All of my life I have served you. And he uses this words, never have I disobeyed your orders. So this is a son telling his father, Dad, I've never stepped outside of your rules. I've never gone against your rules. I've never disobeyed. And that's the description of sin. It's that transgress God's law, overstepping God's. I've never stepped outside of your boundaries, God. That's how this describes sin. You know, David, when he sinned with Bathsheba in the Old Testament, after that, after that, he, he wrote Psalm 51. The entire Psalm is about that sin with Bathsheba and about his crying out to God for forgiveness. And he says there in Psalm 51, he said, God, blot out my transgressions. In other words, where I, I, I went outside of your rules, where I went against you, I overstepped my boundaries, Lord, and I transgressed, Lord, blot them out, take them away. And this is a very heartfelt cry out to God in Psalm 51, that's sin. The Bible also describes sin with words that mean this, 
missing the mark or falling short of the target. That's what sin is. Paul uses this description of sin in Romans 3.23, very famous verse in the Bible, where he says, for all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. We came up short. We missed the mark. We failed to reach the target. And that's how sin is described in the Bible. Sin is also described with a word that means this, failure to do right. Failure to do right. Now, we often attach a word to that in church circles called omission. Omission. And that kind of sin is the result of being absolutely indifferent to God. I don't care. James talks about this in James chapter 4, verse 17, when he says, Anyone who knows the good that he ought to do, but chooses not to do it, it becomes a sin for them. So the Bible talks about sin in these terms. And if you want to know my opinion, I don't believe that there are very many gray areas in this world when it comes to sin. There are very few things, there's very few circumstances where it is unclear whether that is a sin or not. And here's, here's what I mean by that. I don't think that if you come across a situation, I think there's very few things in this life that requires to say, you know, hold on a minute, let me think about this, let me debate, let me do some study, let me um, unpack this a little bit more, let me bring in some help, let me research this to identify if this is a sin or not. I just don't think there's very many of those kind of situations. What I really think is that when it comes down to sin, it really comes down to this right here. It comes down to if your will to follow God is stronger than your desire to sin. That really is the heart of the matter. It's not identifying sin. It really comes down to is if your will to follow God is stronger than your desire to sin. It's the debate over our will that we find justification and uh, justification for engaging in sinful behavior. It really comes down to your will and who's number one in your life. Let, let me give you an example. I don't know a Christian man on this planet who would drive by a gentleman's club and think that it would be okay in God's eyes for him to go in and participate, okay? I don't know one Christian man who would say that, that, that God's okay with that, that it's not a sin. So the debate is not, is that behavior sinful or not? You don't have to think about it. It doesn't require debate. It's a sin. However, I've known plenty of Christian men who have battled their will and they have lost saying things like this. Well, you know what? My wife just doesn't meet my needs, so I, I think God understands. We justify it away. I've heard plenty of Christian men say, well, you know what? I don't, you know, I, I think God would rather me be in a place like this than actually with another woman, so I'm kind of saving my marriage. So when we wrestle that will down, it kind of, takes us to some justification places that are not good. I've heard plenty of men say things like this. It's not really my fault that I'm this way. It comes down to your will. Is it stronger to serve God or to suit your desires? Let me give you another example. I don't know a Christian in the world that would stand up here with me and proclaim gossip is not a sin. 
<laughs> you know, we all know that's a sin, right? The Bible's very clear. The gossip is a sin. So the debate is not over whether it's sinful or not. However, I've known many Christians, and sadly, let me just throw myself into that group, who have battled their will and lost, saying things like this. You know, it's not really gossip, because what I'm telling you is the truth. Or have you ever found yourself saying, hey, we're gonna keep this between you and me, but did you hear what that guy did? Folks, I just don't think there's very many gray areas when it comes to sin. The debate really is over. If your will to follow God is stronger than your desire to sin. So what is sin? Sin is to break or violate God's law. It is to transgress. It's to get outside of God's boundaries. It's to come up short. It's to miss the mark. It's to not care. That's what the Bible describes as sin. So where did sin come from? You know, obviously God is not sinful, has nothing to do with sin, so how did it come about? Sin originated in the Garden of Eden in the opening pages of the Bible. God gave Adam and Eve the entire garden as theirs. It was all good, and they could eat from any tree except for one. There was one tree that they were not allowed to eat from, and that was the rule, that was the guideline. So we read about this in Genesis is chapter 2, verse 16. It just says this. And the Lord commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat it, you will certainly die. Well, if you jump up to Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, it says this. Now, the serpent, which is the devil, was more crafty than any of the other wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say that you must not eat from any tree in the garden. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. Oh, you will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. And they sewed, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Sin originated in the garden of Eden when Eve, deceived by the devil, ate the forbidden fruit, and Adam, her husband, followed right along with her. This act of disobedience brought sin into the world. That sin brought about death. For what did God say to them? If you eat it, you will what? Surely die. Do you realize that, that had Adam and Eve not eaten that fruit and had we managed to live all of these thousands of years without sinning, do you know that we could be rubbing shoulders with Adam and Eve right now? You could know them. We'd also all be naked. But anyway, that's another point. That's another thing. But we would not have died. And you know what? We're still designed to live forever. 
which we have to experience death now first. This act that Adam and Eve, in it, they, they lost their purity. They lost this beautiful home in the Garden of Eden. They lost being able to be in the immediate presence of God, and eventually they lost their physical lives. And since that day, from that day forward, um, there's been this evil trail of sin that has wound its way of wickedness into every single person's life. And that's what prompted Paul to say this in Romans 3, 23. We just looked at it. For all have sinned. Everybody has sinned. All have fallen short of God's glory. Every single one of us has been affected by sin. But I don't even think affected is the right word. I'm going to say we have been infected by sin. Every last one of us, except Jesus. Bible tells that Jesus had no sin. He lived his 33 years, and even though he experienced everything that a person like us would, every temptation, he did not sin. 1 Peter 2.22 says that Jesus committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. That's why Jesus is the perfect sacrifice, the innocent lamb of God who never had one sin. So the question is, what is sin? It's to violate or break law, God's law. It's to come up short. It's to step outside of his boundaries. It's to miss the mark. It's to not care. Sin. Where did sin come from? Well, it started in the garden, in Adam and Eve, when they ate the fruit that God told them not to. So here's the next question. What is sin like? Well, the Bible talks all about what sin is like. Let me summarize some of it for you. Uh, you know, in the Bible, when you really strip it down to it, it talks about sin being selfish. At the heart of the matter, sin is selfish. It's saying to God, what I want is more important than what you want. What I care about, what I want to do, what feels good to me is better than anything that you have to offer, God. Sin, in its very nature, is Selfish. You know what else it is? Sin allures. Sin allures. Sin has this power to charm. It has this power to fascinate and to allure us towards it. And that's why sin is such a temptation. It appeals to us. And that, my friends, is a consequence of the fallen world that you and I are living in to this day. If you go back to the garden that we just read about, about Adam and Eve, Satan did what? He appealed to the desires of the flesh when he pointed out to Eve that the fruit was very good to eat. It's like Satan saying, this is the very best fruit you're ever gonna have in your life. Doesn't this look good? Do, do, doesn't just make you wanna eat it right now, Eve? Check this out. Sin has that alluring effect. Satan appealed to the ambition of pride that had not been fully realized yet, but, but he suggested to her, this fruit will make you wise like God. It's gonna give you something that you've never experienced before. It allures you. You know what else sin does? Sin deceives. Sin absolutely is deceptive. It deceives us. Hebrews chapter three, verse 12 says, see to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be, catch this words, these words, hardened by sin's deceitfulness. There's something about sin that on the surface looks like this, 
but it's actually something else. A few years ago, you guys might re remember, it was a very traumatic thing. Um, uh, Siegfried and Roy, do you remember the day that their show came to an end forever? Siegfried and Roy had a, a show in Vegas where they had these, these huge tigers. Did anybody ever see them in person? Anybody go to Vegas? Okay, one person. I, you're the only one in our whole church that's ever seen that. I think we maybe need to visit about your activities in Sin City after, no, I'm, I'm joking. I'm totally joking. I would have loved to have seen them. But on this show, it actually happened to be Roy's 59th birthday. He came out and he introduced this seven-year-old white Bengal tiger that they had raised since a cub. And he's introducing this tiger to the audience and this tiger, for whatever reason, grabbed Roy's arm. And so Roy had his microphone and he whacked the tiger on the head to try to get it to back off. And the accounts of this vary a little bit, but what we know is that tiger ended up grabbing Roy by the neck and, and the audience that had given eyewitness accounts, they said the tiger ravished Roy back and forth like a rag doll and then ended up dragging him off stage. Now, do you guys remember when this happened? This is all over the news. Roy almost died. It's a miracle he didn't die, but he would never be the same. He had permanent damage from that tiger attack. You know, Siegfried and Roy had been putting on this tiger show, this magic show for, I believe it was about 30 years in Vegas before this happened. If you would think, if anybody on the planet would know tigers better than Siegfried and Roy, I'm, I'm not sure I know who those people are. I mean, Siegfried and Roy, they actually lived with these tigers. They raised them up from their the cubs. They were very much into preservation. I mean, they lived, I mean, I've watched some documentaries. It's a little bit weird, but you know, it's Vegas. And so they live with the, and if anybody should know the dangers of having tigers around, it should be Siegfried and Roy. Somebody pointed out in one of the documentaries I watched about this, they said that uh, as a tiger gets older, the more inclined it is to return to its natural, ferocious, wild instincts. So the longer you keep a tiger around, the more deadly it becomes. I don't know, if you know about this, if you've read about it, you know that little tiger ownership and little, it, it's actually on the rise here in the United States. Over the last decade or two, more and more people have been raising tigers. And we've been seeing tiger attacks more frequently. You know, at the Savage Kingdom in Sumter County, Florida, just a number of years ago, a Siberian tiger lunged at a guy named Vincent Lowe, who was a tiger trainer. He was in the pen fixing the fence, and the tiger came over, and the, and the trainer just pushed it back with a, with a, a fence, uh, a fence uh, pole, thank you, and, and, and pushed it back, and it irritated the tiger, and it lunged at him and killed him. There's another man I read about who had, had a tiger cub and, and kept the tiger cub in his apartment in New York and raised that tiger cub. And then all of a sudden, it got too big for him to control anymore. And then all of a sudden, he discovered that he was living in fear in his own apartment. He didn't know what to do. So he left his apartment. And, and every day, he would come to his apartment with some raw chicken and meat. He would open the door, throw it in there, shut the door, and leave. And the only reason the authorities found out about this is one day when he threw the chicken in there, the tiger grabbed his arm. Another man by the name of Kerry Queenie, um, he raised a tiger cub from uh, up to adulthood. And, and one day, he's very comfortable with his tiger. He took his three-year-old grandson and set him next to the tiger to take a picture. And the tiger mauled that three-year-old boy to death. 
I, I only tell you this to make a point. There are many people in this world that invite things into their lives that when they bring them in are actually quite small and they look very cute when you first bring them in. It's nothing that big, seems harmless enough until it begins to grow. And then it begins to roam your house until it becomes the biggest thing in your life. And the wildness and the ferocity of it finally comes out when you realize you are actually afraid of this thing. And finally you wake up one day and you realize this thing that you've invited into your home is actually controlling you and it has the power to bring you massive harm and even destroy you and it can rip you to shreds. Friends, I'm talking about sin. Something that starts out small, but it grows and it begins to control and it wants to ruin your life. And I believe that's why the Bible speaks of it in the way it does. Like Peter, who says in 1 Peter 5 eight that be alert and of sober mind because the devil prowls around. He's your enemy and he prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. So sin is so deceptive. So, so deceptive. You know what else sin does? Sin enslaves. Sin enslaves. Romans 6, 16 says, don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of that one you obey. Whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. The Bible speaks of sin in the same terms as slavery. You are in bondage and it will control you and you are obedient to it like a master. That's how the Bible describes sin. So, fourth question is, what are the consequences of sin? What are the consequences of sin? Well, I can tell you there, there's some massive consequences to sin. Top of the list is this, sin separates us from God. That's what it does. Why does it separate us from God? Because God has nothing to do with sin. Look at Isaiah chapter 59, verse one. Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor his ear too dull to hear. But your iniquities have separated you from God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear you. Sin separates us from God. Just like in the garden, all of a sudden, Adam and his eyes, they were open. All of a sudden, they were aware that they are separate from God. This relationship that they once had in purity in the Garden of Eden is all of a sudden broken. And, and, and so now there's this gap between God and mankind. So when we talk about Jesus, when we talk about him being the perfect sacrifice, he is the Lamb of God, the one who has no sin, the shedding of innocent blood. We talk about Jesus in these terms. Jesus is a bridge between God and man. Jesus is the mediator, the one who brought man and God, reconciled them back together. Now we're gonna talk more about Jesus next week. But Jesus, the perfect lamb of God, reconciling the separation between God and man through the forgiveness of sins. The biggest consequence of sin is that it separates us from God. Secondly, sin brings suffering every single time. Sin brought suffering to Eve and what was the suffering? What was the immediate suffering that she had to experience after she ate the fruit? The Bible says in Genesis 3.16 that she would experience pain in childbirth. 
So ladies, if you've ever experienced that pain, you can thank Eve all those years ago for doing what she wasn't supposed to do. Adam experienced suffering. What did the Bible say in Genesis 3:19 that Adam would now have to toil and labor by the sweat of his brow to provide for his family. In other words, now it's going to be hard. Now think about this. Back in the Garden of Eden, everything was easy. Everything was provided. There was no sin there. You walked and talked with God and he would be with you there daily. But now that sin separated mankind from God, then all of a sudden pain and suffering and and things that are tough are introduced into the world. That's why oftentimes heaven is talked about as a return to the Garden of Eden-like existence. And why would it be a return there when things are easy and things don't hurt and there's no sadness and we walk and talk with God. What is the difference between that and now? The difference is sin has been removed and the consequences of sin are no longer there in heaven and that's why we often talk about it as a return to Eden where the damage that sin has done is gone and it's good and it's wonderful and it's painless and it's carefree and all of those things again. The Bible also speaks about the suffering that has been inflicted on the earth because of sin. Genesis 3.18 says that now, after sin was introduced, that now the earth is going to produce thorns and thistles for you. It's going to be very hard. It won't be easy to grow crops. Everything's going to be challenging. The Bible talks about how the even the entire earth that God created is put under a curse. Romans 8:19 says, "For the creation awaits an eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God." Revelation, in the book of Revelation, talks about how the curse that was given there will be lifted. So sin, it separates us from God. Sin brings suffering. You know what else sin does? Sin brings death. Absolutely, death. Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in this way, death came to all people, because all sin. So before we taste glory, we have to taste death. And that is a consequence of sin. And again, we're gonna talk more about this next week and I'm I'm very excited about next week because yes, sin has a lot of consequences. Sin is terrible, all of this stuff. But you know what? We have the cure We have the cure to sin. And in case there be any doubt, let me just tell you, the cure is Jesus. And we're gonna talk about the doctrine of Jesus and our Savior next week. Now I'm gonna leave you with this. Um, There in the late 1800s, early 1900s, there was a very famous pastor. He was a preacher, evangelist. His name was Billy Sunday. Have you ever heard of this guy? What a great name for a preacher, Billy Sunday. Billy was a character. He, uh, the history on him, we learned that he played eight years in pro baseball. So he was athletic, but he became a Christian and he decided to follow the Lord's calling on his life to be a preacher. And he was a fiery preacher and very well known during the late 1800s. 
1800s and into the first two decades of the 20th century, uh, people would come from all over to hear him preach, probably led thousands of people to Jesus. He, he, would, he, he would never stand still. I mean, he was, they describe him as somebody all over the stage, and he would do anything to communicate the truth of God. There's this one story where uh, he was preaching about salvation, and he went over to the far end of the stage, and he ran as fast as he could across the stage, and he slid on his knee like sliding into a base and obviously tapping into his baseball career, and he slid across the stage. You'll never see me do it. <laughs> I don't slide. God didn't give me a slide body. He gave me a fall, bounce, and roll body, but that's just, I'm blessed. In a blizzard, I outlast y'all, but anyway... Billy Sunday, he slides across the stage and he looks out the crowd and he says, you know what becoming a Christian is like? And you know what salvation is like? It's like sliding across home plate and the umpire saying, safe. What a great visual. Billy Sunday was preaching on sin one time and I'm gonna leave you with his words. He said, I'm against sin. I'll kick it as long as I have a foot. I'll fight it as long as I have a fist. I'll butt it as long as I have a head. I'll bite it as long as I have a tooth. And when I'm old and footless and fistless and toothless, I'll gum it <laughs> until I go home to glory and it goes home to perdition. I love it. Can I pray for you? Dear gracious Heavenly Father, I give you glory and praise today that you are the cure for sin. Lord, I pray for our church family. Lord, I pray that we feel this and that we do not soft serve, reinterpret, lighten up, or pull back on our understanding of what sin is. Lord, I pray you give us such a keen awareness of sin that we immediately identify it and understand this is dangerous. But Lord, I thank you that you died on that cross for us. And we're all sinners. We all need your grace. Whether we've sinned a thousand times or we've ever sinned just once. Whether our sins are rated R or our sins are almost unnoticeable. I thank you, Lord, for your grace that you died on the cross for every single one of us and it is level ground at the foot of the cross. So Lord, help us not take sin lightly. Lord, when we sin, help us to repent quickly. Lord, let us be like David when he said, created me a clean heart, O God. Lord, we just thank you for your son Jesus for dying on the cross for our sins, bringing grace and mercy to this world, that which we desperately need. Lord, we thank you for your son Jesus who became the bridge, reconciling us to you, opening heaven's doors so that our sins don't send us to hell. So Lord, we give you all praise and glory today. It's in Jesus' name, amen.